thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to another episode of The Real Food Real. Today on the show I am joined by Dr. Sachin Panda and we are going to discuss time-restricted feeding and the effects on muscle mass, cardiovascular health and metabolic health. Hi Dr. Panda and welcome to the show. Hi. It's great to have you on the show. I'd love for you to set the scene for us because it's your first time with us can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, so I am working on circadian rhythm or 24-hour rhythms that we experience on a daily basis for the last um, 21 years, first as a graduate student and then as a faculty at Salk Institute. And uh, my work has to understand how these clocks work in different parts of our body or brain. And... Um, how light or food affects these clocks, and then what do the clocks do for our physiology, metabolism, and behavior? Fascinating. So then I know you said um, earlier that you've sort of had this process of what you've actually looked at specifically. So tell us where you started in terms of that specific research and what you're looking at sort of more currently these days. Yeah, so I was always curious about this um, timing in biology, because if you think carefully, we all evolved on this rotating planet with the predictable daily changes in light and darkness. And with that, day and night, there are also changes in the environment and food availability, etc. So as a result, our genome is programmed or hardwired to go through very highly choreographed daily rhythms, almost more than half of our genome turns on, genes turn on or turn off every day. So this harmonious coexistence of our genomic rhythm with the 24-hour rhythm of our planet actually optimized our fitness, metabolism, cognitive function. But over the last 150 years, uh, what has happened is we live in a modern world with electric light that extends our natural day um, where we can stay awake or go to bed whenever we want. We can eat whenever we want. So our genomic rhythms are not optimized to live in this such a random lifestyle. But at the same time, we cannot just switch off all the lights at sunset and go back to darkness. So this is where I got really curious and curious about the science of circadian rhythm to understand how our circadian system or this timing system uh, responds to environmental cue, for example, light, eating time, when we are active or exercise, sleep, etc. So that this understanding will help us optimize our lifestyle to live a very long, healthy life in our own man-made world and stay at peak performance throughout our life. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I love the term genomic rhythms and I think that's definitely something that we've lost sight of in modern day. As you say, we're exposed to light and technology and we are negatively influencing our circadian rhythm. Is this something that you're finding um, there's increasing awareness of in recent years? Yeah, so a few uh, discoveries actually made it more and more prominent. For example, almost 15 years ago, we started with the availability of modern genomic technology where mm. we can look all 20,000 genes at the same time and then look at how they turn on or turn off in different organs. We made a very surprising discovery. That is more than half of our genome have a very predictable rhythm in when they turn on and off. Now imagine that you are in downtown, you're driving through downtown, there are all these traffic lights. They have to turn yellow, green, and red in a specific sequence so that traffic will flow smoothly. So similarly, our genes turn on and off at different time to make sure that our metabolism, hormones, and nutrients move smoothly between organs. So now, Clay, you can imagine that you're going through the same traffic and the lights are either random or all lights are turned on are green, yellow, or red. And that will create chaos. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens in our modern life. So when we have this random lifestyle, a genome gets confused and half of the genes stay on, half stay off, or half they're confused, they just stay in the middle and that disrupts our metabolism and physiology over a long period of time. Yeah, I love that analogy, and I think that's going to have, you know, the penny drop for a lot of people because we, we are guilty of not supporting our circadian rhythm. So just on this subtopic, what do we need to do to make sure that we're supporting the genomic rhythms? Yeah, so uh, there are two subsequent discoveries that we made that um, helped us understand what are the simple things we can do. Just imagine if, we, if we, here we're talking about 20,000 genes or 10,000 genes going on and off at different time. It's like a huge orchestra, and it, it's really mind-boggling, and we all almost feel like we have no control over it. But then there are two major discoveries that we made. Almost 15 years ago, we found a light receptor or light sensor that's hidden in our eye that we don't need to read newspaper or find our way. But what this light sensor does, how much blue light we have around us, and then triggers, tells our brain that this is daytime. And so it tells all the brain genes to turn on when they're supposed to be turned on and off uh, uh, during this 24-hour day-night cycle. And that was really exciting because that told us clearly that there is, if we can just tweak this blue light, how much light we have around us, and crank it up or crank it down, we can essentially regulate when we go to sleep or we can have some handle on our sleep. But then at the same time, after a few years later, we realized that there are clocks in our gut, clocks in our brain, clocks in our muscle, heart, and everywhere. And those clocks don't really care too much about when we get light. What they care about is when we eat. So, for example, in the morning with the first bite of breakfast, 
that signal synchronizes all of our clock and tells this is morning and go start your daily rhythm now and that's where the clocks get synchronized they synchronize with the environment and they start the whole daily orchestra so now if we think of okay how much of this clock is influenced by food and it's actually outside a little part of the brain almost the entire body clocks are influenced by food so that's when we figured out that well now let's take this finding and ask what we can do with this because this is a very powerful method mm. you take any medication you are essentially tweaking with five or 10 genes and few things here and there and now with food we are essentially uh, using this as a master conductor of this genomic orchestra that's going on and we can tweak we can turn on and off lot of different genes to optimize our health almost like a couple of thousand genes only in liver maybe a thousand genes in our gut and another thousand in heart so this is like finding kryptonite almost yeah absolutely because <laughs> this very simple act of when we eat in the morning if that can synchronize our body clock then that's a huge thing but at the same time if we now flip the coin and ask well if we eat randomly throughout day and night uh, in the middle of the night we wake up and then take a bite of ice cream or a pizza then what happens then the body gets confused because uh, most of these clocks they think that it's middle of the night and we should be sleeping now and that bite in the middle of the night wakes them up and and the body thinks gets confused whether it's morning or late night and as a result what happens is on the whole clock system and says let's not pay attention to food food can come at any random time so let's keep the shop open so just imagine now in your in your home if you want to optimize your energy bill and if you have to to have a good healthy life then you don't want to keep your dishwasher on your washing machine on <laughs> and all the lights on mm. and exactly what happens when you eat randomly our clocks get confused and half of the genes they stay on all the time half of the genes they stay off all the time it's almost going back to the traffic light scenario where all the traffic lights are green or all the traffic lights are yellow so these two findings kind of told us that now let's go back and figure out how long we should eat and how long we should fast on a daily basis and does it have anything to do with what type of food we eat so then we did a very simple experiment and this experiment is simple straightforward in the sense if we go back to the field of nutrition and then ask what are the big things we have learned in the last 50 years we have learned that suppose a high carb diet or feeding only fat when i'm saying only fat it's like 70% calories coming from fat it's not a normal fat milk or anything it's pretty high amount of fat when you give that that kind of food to a little mouse then the mouse gets unhealthy irrespective of the genes they have like if we take one mouse give a healthy diet another mouse a high fat or a high carb diet even though their genes are absolutely identical the mouse that it's high fat diet become sick 
So that's a very nice paradigm because now we can go and give one mouse this uh, very unhealthy diet and say, whenever you want to eat, please go ahead and eat and become unhealthy. And now we take the same amount of food and the same nutrition and give to a second mouse, the identical twin mouse with the same gene. And we can tell this mouse, eat all of this diet within eight hours or nine hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. And when we do this experiment, what is surprising is the second mouse that eats in a time-restricted manner, you know, the calorie is not restricted, the nutrition quality is not restricted. The only thing restricted is time. They have to eat within eight hours every day at the same time, or nine hours every day at the same time. If we do that, then this time-restricted fed mice were profoundly protected from obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, etc. And we have done these experiments again and again to make sure that it works. Yeah. To make sure that it works in it works in old days, young days. And then we take fat mice and then put them on time-restricted feeding. And surprisingly, we can reverse many of these diseases. It almost works like as if the mice are on all type of medications at once and they become completely healthy. So that was absolutely surprising. So that's why we had to repeat it many times and... <laughs> have 200 plus figures in these papers. So that was the phase two of our research and that prompted us to ask when people eat and can people change their eating timing? So for example, nutrition research told us that we should not eat too much and we asked people, can you control your calories? And many people can control their calories and stay healthy. So similarly, very simple question is, can people control when they eat? So that's kind of the next phase we're trying to do now. And yeah. then see what can be done with human. But what is exciting for us, particularly for my lab, is we can ask a question in simple animals, which have been used extensively to model human disease or nutrition, and then see what happens to this animal. It's almost like a preclinical model. Before we go to human, we can do all these experiments in animals. We can look at all 20,000 genes, which are very similar to what we have in human. And we can go into their heart, we can go to their gut, and then figure out what might be changing, whether there is any risk or not. We can know what can be the risk even before we go to humans. So that's why we're very excited about this. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating research. I'm an identical twin myself, so I always love hearing the genetic, you know, variable being constant so we can look at the environmental impact. And I think, you know, a lot of people are going to be quite surprised about the finding because we've all been brought up to, you know, to, to learn about calories, um, especially over the last five decades and very much over the last five years, it's all been about food quality. But what you're saying is that essentially neither matters if you just time-restrictive eat. So have you found specific details? I know, um, I mean, I'd like to talk about the connection between the circadian rhythm and time-restrictive eating because um, there's a, a big, you know, health benefit from having a a circadian rhythm fast, am I right? Yeah, so uh, to make little correction, we're not saying that calorie or nutrition quality don't matter. Mm. Um, 
I'm not saying but that either. But <laughs> how much we can do better. Um, but this can be one, another powerful uh, approach to our nutrition. The reason is this, because um, for many of us, we actually don't have control over what kind of nutrition or how much we'll get in a day. Uh, a lot of us, we work in the office, uh, at workplace, we may not have access to good nutrition. At the same time, when we come home, we may be busy, uh, we want to get something quick and then microwave it and eat. And when we cannot control our nutrition quality, then maybe timing can be our first step, uh, the first layer of discipline about nutrition. Absolutely. Yeah. And much easier to control. I agree. So then if we go um, sort of back towards the, the, the research in terms of the circadian rhythm, what's been your findings there in terms of the, the circadian rhythm or the 13-hour fast? Yeah, so uh, we have done a series of experiments um, in mice and also sometimes we go back to little fruit flies because uh, the circadian rhythms, uh, genes were initially identified in fruit flies. There are many physiology of fruit flies that are similar to humans, although it's very hard to imagine, but a lot of the genes that work in, for example, in human heart or human muscle or human brain are all conserved in fruit flies. So I'll give you a few examples from my flies and then uh, what we have seen in humans. Um, so going back to mice, when we do these time-restricted feeding experiments, we give mice access to food for somewhere between 8 to 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And when these mice eat for 8 to 12 hours, they eat as much as mice that have random access to food they eat. And they're always protected from weight gain. So that's the uh, first thing that comes into mind. But these experiments were done in food that was already rich with fat and carb. Um, So on high-fat, high-carb diet that causes obesity, time-restricted feeding can prevent obesity, prevent increase in cholesterol, prevent increase in blood sugar, etc. If we do the experiment in mice that that are eating healthy, balanced diet, then we don't see much change in body weight. Uh, They're healthy to begin with, so you cannot make them super healthy. But what is interesting is these mice more muscle mass and less fat mass. So the body weight remains the same, but they increase their muscle mass slightly. Right. And as mice age, and just like us, they also get slightly, a little bit, compromised liver function. So, for example, even a healthy athlete in his 50s will always complain of a little bit of health problem that relates to liver or gut. And uh, what we see, this time-restricted fed mice which are having access to a healthy diet, they don't have any of those signs. For example, mice get a little bit of liver problem on healthy diet when they become old, and the TRF mice don't get that. Right. So that's with uh, healthy diet and fat diet and fructose, high fructose isocalls, all these kind of diets. Then if we go back to, say, asking um, 
obese and already diabetic mice, uh, if we put them on time-restricted feeding, if they're young, then they become completely healthy within six to eight weeks, which in human life may be a year or so. But it's not that uh, within a week, these mice will lose all the weight and then become healthy. It takes time mm. to change metabolism. But if it happens in old days, then uh, they kind of lose a good amount of fat. They become healthy. Uh, but if they have, if we don't change their diet, if they're on the same unhealthy, high-fat diet, then they kind of come back to some some health benefits. Means they still lose a lot of weight. Their diabetes goes away. Uh, but they don't become like mice that are eating healthy diet all the time. So they, uh, they're slightly, I would say they are slightly uh, overweight healthy mice or obese healthy mice. Um, so these are some of the things that we see. Then you might ask, is there any difference between if the mice eat for 8 hours or 12 hours? Because the body weight is same even if they eat eight hours or 12 hours. Ah, I was going to ask that question. <laughs> I think everyone's looking for the magic numbers. <laughs> so if they eat for eight hours or nine hours or 12 hours, those mice all weigh the same. They have the same body weight, same body composition. But there's one very exciting, very interesting difference. And that is, if we now take these mice and mice that eat healthy diet, but eat randomly. So now mouse that eats healthy diet, randomly. Mouse that eats unhealthy diet, randomly. Mouse that eats eight hours, um, high-fat diet. And mice that eat 12 hours, high-fat diet. And we put all of them on a treadmill. And then ask how long they can stay on treadmill. And this is a very standard test that's done in mice and it nicely translates into human in many many cases so the mouse that eats healthy diet but kind of once in a while snacks in the middle of the sleep cycle uh, it'll run on treadmill for say uh, an hour and then mouse that eats unhealthy diet randomly as you can imagine it stays on treadmill for half an hour only yeah. but the mouse that eats the same unhealthy diet but within eight hours. So remember, it's eating on healthy diet, but eating everything within eight hours, going through 16 hours fast. This mouse will stay on treadmill for 90 minutes, 50% longer than mouse that ate healthy diet randomly. Wow. Whereas if we take a mouse with the same number of calories within 12 hours, it cannot outperform, outperform more than 60 minutes. So we see this increased endurance that comes only when mice eat for eight or nine hours. And this endurance benefit goes away if they eat for uh, 11 or 12 hours. So there, there are this fine granularity that tell us that what type of nutrition and how long they fast, all of these things matter when it comes to body weight or endurance or disease. Muscle mass. That's amazing. I think a lot of our athletes are going to be suddenly eating for eight hours only because they're looking for the same endurance benefit. So, has there been much human studies with regards to this finding? 
Well, we haven't done much human studies with uh, endurance athletes because our focus is entirely on how to reduce body weight among overweight and obese. Yes. Um, but what we hear from once in a while, hear from other people, is um, some endurance athletes try to do this eight or nine hour sitting. And, you know, uh, they report that their their endurance goes up. Mm. But at the time, we can't, I mean, being a scientist, I control clinical study where we have 50 athletes doing eight hours, the same athletes go to 10 or 12 hours, and then we go to hear back from all of them. Mm. Uh, because it's possible that some people didn't get the benefit and didn't tell me. <laughs> some are getting the benefits and are telling me. I have to be always, as a scientist, I have to be skeptical. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see uh, whether people can do this and then you know, what happens to their endurance. For athletes, there is a lot of different questions. For example, if someone is trying to lose weight and they're walking or biking an empty stomach in the morning, uh, then we know that they will lose much more fat mass than exercising in a full stomach. Correct. Whereas, whereas for somebody who is doing strength training and endurance at the same time, for this person to do very strenuous, very intensive exercise with an empty stomach may not be the ideal thing because they might lose a little bit of muscle mass. They might burn some amino acids. Um, so this is where, again, the question comes, when should we exercise? And what is interesting is there is also an optimum timing for exercise. And this optimum timing seems to be uh, late in the afternoon. Um, so our physical activity, uh, our peak muscle performance happens somewhere between 3 and 6 in the evening. So that means if people exercise or go to gym, then they also have low, very little chance of, reduced chance of exercise-induced injury. Uh, but what is the evidence? So what is the, you might ask, what is the evidence? What is the data? And the data is actually surprisingly very old. So almost 30 years ago, circadian biologists came up with this idea that, well, if our endurance or exercise of is optimum in late afternoon. Let's go back and look at American football and American baseball data. So in the, in the US, when West Coast team flies to East Coast and plays Monday night football. So Monday night football can continue till nine or 10 in the evening in East Coast, but these guys just flew from West Coast. So they're actually in their peak performance time. Yeah. If you look at 25 years of NBA and NFL record, then you'll always find a found statistically significant difference that the West Coast team has a much higher chance of winning against the home team if they flew on Sunday and played Monday night football, Monday night. And that was really mind-boggling because it's not only one league. It's not only NFL. It happens in NBA. And <laughs> so it, almost every sports, they see it. So that is a good, on very unbiased data showing that our exercise fitness or physical fitness peaks late in the afternoon. And maybe that's the best time to exercise. 
Yeah, fascinating. So lots of really good findings there. So obviously the eating window of either or between 8 and 12 hours has, you know, many amazing health benefits, uh, whereas it seems that the the 16-hour fast or the eating for eight hours is um, more beneficial for increased endurance. So I love that and I look forward to seeing more um, human studies in the near future. So I'd love to hear from you next about, I mean, we've touched on it briefly, but you obviously do look at, um, I guess, you know, more obese or, or unhealthy people. So what do you what have you noticed with regards to risk factors for cardiovascular disease when it comes to um, time restrictive eating? So there are some uh, very large epidemiological studies done for cardiovascular disease, and this is even before we knew anything about time restricted feeding. So among the health professionals, there are long term studies that are going on in the US where they track. Uh, thousands of health professionals uh, over several years and then collect very basic data, for example, how much they sleep, when they go to sleep, uh, what time they eat their breakfast, etc. And in those studies, even after controlling for diet, physical activity, and many other parameters, surprisingly, they found that people who eat randomly have a much higher incidence of cardiovascular diseases. So in that way, the epidemiology is very uh, convinced, which is a lot of people, thousands of people, several years of observation, tells us that the erratic random time has some very adverse cardiovascular disease. And in... Going back to our mouse and fly experiment, what we see is uh, we can measure cardiac performance in flies, just very similar to humans. And when when these fruit flies eat randomly, as they age, their cardiac performance declines. What happens is they get the the heart becomes slightly more arrhythmic, and the same thing happens in humans. Our arrhythmia slowly can grow up. And um, our dilation and contraction, those also changes. And time restricted feeding can essentially slow down this aging heart. Um, these mice, sorry, these flies are even completely healthy. And in a mouse, what we have seen is if we disrupt the clock heart on the, on the aorta, and the vasculature, then those mice also have higher incidences of cardiovascular disease. So in that way, we have human epidemiological data, mouse data, and animal data, all pointing to one common theme, that's random eating increases cardiovascular risk, and time-restricted eating can protect against cardiovascular disease for a very long time in life. But we have controlled human study where, for example, we can take people who have hypertension, um, mild hypertension who are not on medication, and if we put them on time-restricted feeding, can their blood pressure drop by 5 or 10 millimeter of mercury? Since that's the kind of um, data I would like to see. <laughs> so that's what we are. Uh, those are the kind of studies now we are doing. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
fantastic research and and the results will be so fascinating. So then if we sort of go full circle and link it back to the circadian rhythm, do you know if it's better to eat sort of the eight hours early in the day or later in the day? Like, I mean, in regards to our body's clock. Yeah, so this is where things become a little bit murky because um, this is where we got to figure out. So what is practical and mm. uh, what is optimum? Uh, it may not be perfect, but what is optimum? So I'll give you this uh, science behind why we should or should not eat. Uh, so over the last few years, one thing that we have seen from human data is if we look at what are the genes or what are the mutations that are associated with obesity in humans, then one of the top five or 10 genes that always pops up is melatonin receptor. This mm-hmm. is a protein that binds to melatonin and does something. And this was kind of surprising because in obesity research or metabolism research, we never thought that melatonin which is considered a sleep hormone, would affect obesity. And uh, then over the last five or six years, it has become much clearer that melatonin, although it's a sleep hormone, it also, it not only puts the brain to sleep, it also makes many other organs, quote-unquote, sleep. So for example, it can come and bind to its receptor or the protein that's present in pancreas and tell the pancreas to sleep or not to make or release any insulin. So what happens is that now, as we turn up, as our melatonin level begins to rise, it slowly tells the pancreas don't make any more or don't release any more insulin. So as a result, what happens is if we eat a late night snack or late night dinner close to our bedtime when our melatonin has already built up, then our body cannot process that extra sugar surge easily. And that sugar will stay in our circulation for a longer time. Mm. That might be contributing to obesity. So if we put this together now, that late night melatonin, at least melatonin, may be one reason why our insulin response is not very good at night, then we can say, well, it's better to finish that eight hour or 10 hour, at least two to three hours before our bedtime. Because typically we begin to make melatonin uh, two to three hours before our bedtime. So now you can do the math. If somebody is going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, maybe his or her eating window can go up to seven evening. But if somebody goes to bed at 12 or one, then you can give some discount. (laughs) (laughs) That is fascinating. And I think that, you know, gives a lot of merit to probably what we've already experienced ourselves in terms of how different we feel if we do eat earlier and allow that time. I think for some people it might have been experienced as, say, digestive time. So they didn't feel like they were going to bed as soon as they'd finished eating and digesting their food. But, I mean, if we think about the physiology behind that, um, it shows even more reason for an earlier dinner. 
Yeah, so you kind of brought up another uh, interesting word there, digestive system. Mm. I actually there's a very strong circadian rhythm to our digestive system. Mm. And um, if you imagine, we are eating a lot of different kinds of food that are going through this gut, and then the gut is digesting all that with all these acids and enzymes digesting food. It must be it must be uh, also getting injured during this process. Maybe the gut lining needs to be repaired. And that actually exactly what happens in the middle of the night. Our gut repairs itself by laying a new layer of gut epithelium, or not a new layer, but actually repairing a few cells and patching the gut by cells. So now imagine if, you, if, if the gut lining is like a highway and it's getting repaired at night, you cannot have traffic flowing when you want to repair the road. Mm. So that's also another reason not to eat late into the night because that's when the gut repairs itself. Yeah, fascinating. I think that's a really good analogy as well because we have to think about what our body's doing during that time. It's our it's our rest and repair time. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious that late night eating isn't good for us, but I think, you know, the science can be quite powerful and can maybe, you know, feed the compliance, pardon the pun, to people that are struggling to make that behavioral change. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, here is also another case where... Um, learning a little bit, very basic things about how our physiology works or how our body works um, becomes very powerful for people to convince themselves to adopt one behavior or not. Yeah, or other. yeah I completely agree. But like you said earlier about the practical side of things, like I think with fasting, um, the challenge can be the that, you know, that it may be impractical or that the logistics make it more challenging so you know if you're going to bed at nine o'clock um you know not all of us have the ability to eat at 6 p.m yeah so that could be quite challenging Mm. so this is where the um, another part of physiology also comes into play for example we know that um after we eat anything uh, with a some carbohydrate, for example, um, our insulin levels begin to rise, our blood sugar level begins to rise, and then within one and a half to three hours, again, all these levels come back to normal. So we know insulin is a anabolic hormone. Mm. So that means when we eat, our body goes from, um, if it was burning fat, it goes to storing fat mode. So insulin can signal to uh, turn on fat synthesis, uh, so we make fat. We are not actually burning fat right after we eat. Correct. So then what happens? Now you imagine if somebody is eating, suppose say somebody cannot control and has to eat at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. late at night, and then in the morning also has to start from home around 6 or 6.30 and needs to have breakfast. Then it's very difficult to do, eat everything within 8 or 10 hours. Yeah. But here's something that the person can do, at least stay in the insulin mode for only in the morning and evening, maybe one more time in the middle of the day. So in that way, it's not a uh, really long fast, but at least with two meals, uh, the physiology remains in uh, anabolic phase, maybe 
three hours in the morning and three hours in that night. And with three meals, maybe it's nine hours of anabolic physiology, um, morning breakfast, and midday lunch, and evening dinner. But if the person continues to eat in every two to three hours, then that defeats the purpose. So at least, I mean, uh, what I think is, if some people cannot eat everything within eight to nine hours or 10 hours, then at least they, will, they should try not to snack in between. Maybe have to three meals. Thank you, because, you know, we do encourage decreased meal frequency for the fat burning potential that we get when our insulin is low. So more science to help people start to switch from that grazing lifestyle, which we've been told was healthy for so long. Yeah. <laughs> That's exciting. All right. So I wanted to switch gears just slightly. Now we've seen this emergence of research and conversation around fasting and we've got Jason Fung and Jimmy Moore and lots of vocal people in the health and nutrition space speaking about the benefits of fasting. So can you tell us what the difference is between time-restricted feeding and fasting? Yeah, so the area, the area of fasting kind of started with caloric restriction and there is undeniable benefits of caloric restriction in, from simple organisms like yeast, diverse yeast, all the way to humans. And in fact, uh, we learned a lot about how our body responds to food and the absence of food um, from this vast body of literature that came out of caloric restriction or fasting. So in that way, this is really fascinating. That's kind of, uh, that fills in the blank of many of our research because when we ask what happens during mice or we humans fast overnight, then we go back to the playbook of caloric restriction. Um, so in a way, our body is actually designed to go through these rhythms, daily rhythms of eating and fasting. Um, again, this can be a very contentious uh, definition, what is fast. Some mm. people think that, uh, having um, no food for 12 to 15 hours is fast, and some people think it's even six hours of not having food is a fast, whereas uh, card-carrying calorie restriction people will say, tell, uh, anything less than 24 hours of food restriction is not a fast. So you have to have at least right. 12 hours. Mm. hours of so um, I think these two are highly complementary. Um, the only difference is when we talk about fasting or fight to diet, uh, then there is this um, hidden um kind of expectation that the person has to count or at least guesstimate how many calories he or she was eating before getting into this fasting diet and reduce that calorie intake by X percentage during the fasting day or go through complete water fasting. So in that way, there is a, uh, there is a burden on the practitioner to count calories or to think of how to um, reduce food intake. Many people do it, and undeniably there are many benefits. And physiologically, it also gives a, if somebody is going through, say, 24 hours or longer water fast, that gives a very long time during which 
body can go through repair and rejuvenation. Um, and we have seen clear data from, again, mouse, human, and many model system that that's what happens. Um, but on a daily basis, I think that might have happened historically for humans. But at the same time, on a daily basis, we also ate at a certain time and we had little access to food at some other time. So you can, I can also argue that the uh, time restricted feeding imposes a very daily rhythm in eating and uh, I can say fasting. <laughs> but the reason why did not we did not use the word fasting was uh, we realized that there is no consensus about how long should be the fast. Yeah. And second is um, the word fasting implies that the person has to count calories um, or reduce calories. Um, yeah. And, and in popular culture, or for a lot of people, fasting is a very negative word. <laughs> Whereas time, when we say time restricted feeding, then people think that, okay, so they, they are not actually foregoing any food, they can eat it. They can eat anything that they want within that window. So in that feeling like that choice is not compromised. They can still choose the same food, but in practice, something else happens. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you though. I mean, a 16 hour fast, I mean, say we are doing the the minimal eight hour window, which is obviously a 16 hour fast. I mean, that to me is quite practically achievable and sustainable. Whereas I don't find in my experience that, you know, 24 hour fasts are very successful for a lot of people. Um, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And then um, the difference between the obese and the metabolically healthy, because I see a lot of the positive research on fasting in the obese, but maybe not so much in those of us that are metabolically well. Yeah. So going back to your comment about eight hours eating, 16 hours fast. Mm. Uh, so that's, um, we hear a lot of different opinions, uh, people like you and many people, they say it's feasible, they can do eight, 16. And then there are some people who feel it's not feasible. Uh, but what is interesting is those who try to do eight sixteen, they may be able to do eight hours eating for two or three weeks. They see some benefits. They might lose some weight or some benefits that they find. They might sleep better or the acid reflux goes down. And then they go back to, say, 12 hours eating. Mm. And that's where they are in maintenance mode, whatever benefits they have reaped. They can still maintain that for several weeks. Um, so that's what we see all the time in personal interaction and also in my personal experience. Yeah. And then going back to your other question about whether 24 hours fasting or longer is sustainable. Again, again, it's a mixed um, response that I hear. Um, some people can do it, but I agree there are a lot more people who can do a um, 12 to 13 hours fast on a daily basis than <laughs> who can do 24 hours or 48 hours water fast. Then coming back to your comments about obese and healthy people and how fasting benefits them. Um, fasting has a lot of other benefits that are 
even uh, required for healthy, metabolically healthy people. For example, um, autophagy, which is mm. cell repairs itself by essentially eating up damaged mitochondria, damaged organelle. That process doesn't happen easily, only after several hours of fasting. And actually, there is a circadian rhythm to autophagy too. And in this eight hours eating or 10 hours eating and rest fasting, that also triggers autophagy on a daily basis. Um, and the 24 hours fast or longer fast actually turns it on even further yeah. than that. There is a much better auto repair process that happens. And a similar thing, for example, if you go back to the gut and think if, if the to gut three or four days uh, of no traffic, then of course they can repair the highway much better than if they had only access to repairing the highway every night for 12 hours. So we also see at least some of the data that are coming out of um, Walter Longo's lab showing that when uh, mice or humans fast for two to three days on a very low diet, caloric diet for a few days, then rejuvenation or reappearance of new cells from stem cells that happen. Yeah. So there are some benefits there. So I absolutely appreciate that. But I guess my question is, you know, how sustainable is consistent 24-hour fasting? And, you know, when do we get to that point where we're becoming more catabolic and therefore, you know, there starts to be negative implications that might, you know, outweigh the positives? Yeah, so 24 hours fast also has another societal implication that is, you know, it's very difficult to tell uh, children to do 24 hours fast. (laughs) Uh, We also don't know whether this 24 hour, where is the limit of fasting? For example, uh, when children are in that rapid growth mode, uh, we don't know when uh, the benefits of fasting stops and the <laughs> bad things of malnutrition or undernutrition will begin. Um, exactly. so, it's a, so in that way, it's a little bit difficult to practice on children. Whereas time-restricted feeding is something that we can uh, begin to impose on kids, particularly the teenagers who tend to stay awake late into the night. Even if we put them on a 12-hour habit, then it stays as a lifelong habit. Um, But this 24 hours fasting in that way has a very different demographic and age group that can do it. Um, Whereas the time restricted feeding is something that we can even put teenagers on. Mm. And Um, then if, sorry to interrupt you, but go on. Sorry, yeah. Oh, you go ahead. I was just going to say that if we go back to the comparison between the obese and the metabolically healthy, you know, clearly yeah. if you're obese and you have more body fat to burn, you can sustain a longer fast. Whereas, am I right, that the leaner you are, the less you can sustain because of obviously the fuel source? Um, yeah, theoretically that's true. But then if we look at um, the distribution of fuel source or leanness or fat among a normal population, um, a lot of lot of us actually have fuel source to go 
two to three days without food. Oh, um, I agree. Um, but the point, another point that you raised is, uh, do we understand our catabolic and anabolic process mm. uh, to see when um, gluconeogenesis or glucose production from amino acids or muscles fasting? And because this is something that we don't want. And when our body completely switches over to ketosis, mm. and those things might be different for different people with different adiposity, people who have high protein mass and high lean mass and less fat mass versus people who have high fat mass and less lean mass. Those physiology um, need to be worked out. And I think that's the point because, you know, N should equal one. I see a lot of people, you know, getting their advice from the internet and kind of doing, you know, exactly what another person might be doing. But we've got to think about those individualities. Yeah. So those things are very important. It's, mm. uh, we do see a lot of people who can do 24 hours fast um, very easily and then other people who uh, might go hypoglycemic after 18 hours and they are feeling dizziness. And another thing is some people's electrolytes and lymph- lymphatic systems are very different. Some might need more electrolytes. Um, and depending on physical activities, some people might get muscle cramp after uh, several hours of fast. Um, so I think the longer the fast is, one has to be uh, careful and should be under medical supervision to make sure that the fasting is optimized. I totally agree, and I'm very glad you said that. Um, my final question was if you had any comments on comparisons between males and females. I mean, this can be certainly with your TRF, but um, more specifically with fasting. You know, I, I do see a lot of the research in men, and I wanted to explore how the hormonal differences um, between men and women might may affect the the goals, but also that optimal time and window. Yeah, so unfortunately I haven't followed too much of caloric restriction or fasting in okay. males and women, but um, with respect to animal research, one thing we know for sure is um, the female animals um, have two different problems. One is uh, for them it's difficult to put weight, put on weight. So even if we put female mice on high fat diet, they actually don't put on too much weight. But if we put postmenopausal female mice on high fat diet, they gain weight very rapidly. And this is a this is highly reproducible postmenopausal mouse models will gain weight very rapidly if they have random access to food. But at the same time, time-restricted feeding works beautifully well, very strongly on the same female mouse model. So if they have access to food somewhere between 8 to 10 hours or 11 hours, then they're highly protected from that weight gain. So that's in mouse. But in humans, it's even more interesting. There is a large study done by the son, who is a very good friend and colleague in University of California system. She has gone back and looked at uh, women who eat for 11 hours 
and then fast overnight for at least 13 hours and have uh, looked at the health record over several years. And what she finds is women who fast for 13 hours are protected from breast cancer. Wow. And then she took it to the next days and asked, what happens to women who already have breast cancer and are going through therapy? Uh, fortunately, she is in a big cancer center and they have a very big uh, women's, um, sorry, breast cancer program. So she has access to thousands of breast cancer patients and survivors. And surprisingly and uh, pleasantly, what we found was women who go through 13 hours of fast overnight, uh, they have much better prognosis than women who eat randomly. So those two papers, I think, um, uh, really a very powerful paper in cancer field showing uh, TRF does work for women. It's not only about weight loss. It actually can protect against uh, cancer. I love that research. I mean, personally, I, I find the 13-hour fast the most practical for my day in life and, um, you know, very sustainable. And it's amazing that the research is being done, you know, just obviously outside our, you know, short-term goals, which might be body compositional management, um, but looking at long-term disease risk prevention. So um, I'm going to get those research papers or at least get you to point me in the right direction so I can pop them in the show notes for our um, listeners. Yeah, sure. I'll send you some of those papers. Amazing. I have thoroughly enjoyed exploring this topic with you today, Dr. Panda. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge. Um, can you Have you got any um, links I can direct our listeners to find out more about yourself? Yeah, so we actually have a, a study that's going on and anyone from anywhere in the world can sign up. It's called mycircadianclock.org and people can go there learn a little bit about our study. There's also some blog post about circadian rhythm. And if they like, they can sign up and download the app, My Circadian Clock, and start sharing their lifestyle so that we can incorporate that into our research. Oh, I love that. I'm going to sign up straight away. I've been using the um, fasting tracker, let me just think of the name, uh, Zero. To, yeah. and I've been sharing that with my clients, but I'll definitely direct our listeners to mycircadianclock.org. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you again for your time and I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.